Welcome to the Find Your Leadership Confidence Podcast with Vicki Nedling. You are about to discover impactful lessons that help you grow as an individual, grow your confidence, and find the positive and good within you, so you powerfully and authentically become the best version of yourself. Be sure you visit our website at www.findyourleadershipconfidence.com. While you're there, subscribe to us via your favorite network. Now tune in, get ready, and enjoy the journey of emerging as a leader of exception in the 21st century. Welcome everyone to the Find Your Leadership Confidence Podcast. I'm your host, Vicki Nethling, coming to you from Roswell, Georgia. The goal of this podcast is to bring topics and guests that will empower you to become that confident leader and take your business and your life to the next level. Today, I am very pleased to have with me Dr. Tasha Golden. Let me tell you about Tasha. She is a, a research, director of research at the International Arts and Mind Lab at Johns Hopkins and an expert in creativity and well-being. Her research helps leaders reimagine status quo in health, education, workplaces, and more. Innovation and change come not from having all the answers, but asking the right questions. Today, I thought a great theme for our interview would be igniting change, improving well-being. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Tasha Golden. Hello. Oh, thank you so much, Vicki. It's great to be here. So we always start with an easy question before we get into the meat of the hard stuff. <laughs> Or the interesting stuff. And that is just tell everybody what part of the country do you call home? Oh, I am coming to you from Louisville, Kentucky today. Oh. Yeah, and this is my home as well. <laughs> Very yeah. cool. Yes, I'm a retired UPSer and uh, Louisville oh. is a big place for us. <laughs> yes, a big hub. <laughs> yes, Worldport is awesome. All right. So in one of your blogs, you wrote... All communication involves word and tone choices, whether we're intentional about them or not. Being that I teach public speaking and the importance of tone, I thought this was really a great <laughs> one to start with. So share more about that for our audience. Um, what did you want to get across to the audience? Well, you, I have to say I am a... Um... I am a singer songwriter turned public health scientist. So the work that I'm doing right now is never what I imagined doing. This was not in the plan at all. So in order to answer your question, I will back up just a little bit and say that um, the only career that I ever wanted from the time I was a little girl was to be a singer songwriter, to write my songs, to travel around, play them with play them for audiences. And I got to do that for a lot of years. And a lot on the outside, things looked really great for a long time. You know, we had songs and TV and film, working with Grammy-winning musicians. It was really lovely. And then on the inside, a couple of things were happening that were kind of shifting the trajectory of my career. And the first one was that I realized I had songs about difficult things in my life, like my history of depression or my mm. family's history of domestic violence. And no matter where we went in the world, those were the songs that people lined up after concerts wanting to talk with me about. So 
over the years, I've had hundreds of people share really personal stories with me based on the songs that I had shared, stories of abuse or um, depression, anxiety, suicide, ideation, a lot of them saying that they had never told anyone before. I'm the first person they'd ever told. Mm. And that made me so curious about like, oh, if I'm the first person they'd ever told, that means they've never told a doctor or a therapist. Mm. It means that all of these community services that are designed to meet the needs of folks like survivors or folks with mental health conditions aren't meeting these people, right? Because these yeah, folks have never told same. anybody before they told me. And I started to get really curious about what is it that's happening in the space of music that isn't happening in clinics and in other spaces in our communities? And how do we bridge that gap between what's possible in the space of the arts and what's not yet possible in these other places? So I was stewing on that for years. The second thing that happened was that the um, tumult and grind of the industry, the isolation of it um, in many ways, I was uh, running myself into the ground mm -hmm. and I hit pretty catastrophic burnout, major depression, couldn't get out of bed for many weeks, let alone play concerts. And so I had to completely reimagine who I was what did the who what was my identity? Again, this was the only thing I'd ever wanted to do is the only thing I ever yeah. imagined doing. Um, so a lot of that reimagination work that led to my current research now has that thread in it of communication. What becomes possible in the arts that isn't possible? Otherwise, what is it that humans can think and know and do and feel? in the context of creativity that we don't otherwise. Um, and I share all of that as background for the question that you asked me about, you know, we're using tone and voice in our communication, whether we're intentionally aware of it or not. When I first stopped touring, I got, I enrolled um, in a grad program in poetry. I thought I would just work on my songwriting craft for a couple of years and then get back at it. And so as part of that, I was teaching first year students in, um, classes in rhetoric and writing. And a lot of the students would come in expecting to learn some communication skills like, okay, you know, I think their expectation a lot of times was the way that I communicate right now is perfectly fine. But when I really want to amp up my results, like if I've got to give a public speech, or if I've got to write a cover letter, then I want to know all of these extra skills for how to do that. <laughs> and they would quickly find out what quickly became a message is like, there is no um, status quo that's neutral. This, the status quo is never neutral. You have always mm -hmm. been communicating. Your communication has always had effects. The difference is not whether you're, you have benign neutral communication or really optimized communication with these skills. The difference is whether you know how to be intentional about the choices that you have always been making and the effects that you've always been having. Mm -hmm. And that kind of message of the status quo is not neutral. And we can take a step back and think about how do we get intentional about the things that we've maybe never even learned to think about or pay attention to? How can that change the results that we get, not only by optimizing and improving things, but making sure that we're not doing harm to ourselves and others. That's so much of um, yeah. what my work circles around now. Yeah, so good. So you, you talked about your career as an artist, and you just mentioned about the trauma and the depression, and you gave some advice to the, the readers of your, your website about how so many people that you met, fellow artists, were doing things to help people, but not recognizing that they were overwhelmed and depleted themselves. And so you said, mm. you're not a vending machine, giving out mental health support to others. 
You're a fellow human who needs support yourself. And I just thought, you know, let's talk a, a few minutes about that because, it, you know, it is true with artists. I, I think when you you look at artists and, and it could be executives as well. Um, Absolutely. They, they are this persona about them that they have their crap together, that everything is wonderful, as you were saying. And if you admit that not, that everything is not wonderful or that you do need help, then that lessens your value or your worth or something. And so you just hold it in, which doesn't make it get better. So chat a little bit more about that. Yeah, thank you for asking the question. It is so common among artists and creatives, but also people in service industries. There's kind of like a societal idea around you know, who needs and deserves support for the work that we do with fellow humans? Even if like anybody who's listening, if you were to imagine who do we think of who needs trainings, for example, in trauma-informed practice in mental health, we think we might think immediately of like therapists, of course, social workers, maybe teachers, but there are so many people who are intensely engaged with fellow humans every single day. And that work requires some, some tools and some preparation and support that most of us are not getting. And uh, in my work now, I research effects of arts on health and mental health. And a lot of times we're looking at the positive effects, right? And art was something that I had gone to for my whole life because it did help me process and understand and navigate the human experience. It was the business side of it that ran me into the ground, but that wasn't inevitable. There are mm -hmm. tools and supports that we can take up and learn that help us to take better care of ourselves and also better care of our clients, our customers, our audiences, whatever, whatever the case may be. And so, um, I now, I provide trainings in mental health and trauma-informed practice that I designed kind of like, what is the training I wish I would have had yeah. that really is designed specifically for people who are leaders, are change makers, are creatives, who are kind of maybe thinkingly, thinking a little bit differently than the really traditional service professions, but still are engaging intensely with human beings. And what I find for a lot of us is exactly what you're saying. There is this sense of like, I'm supposed to be here to um, give out mental health support to other people. I kind of become this object of like giving and everybody else is a human and I love interacting with all of them but somehow I'm um not human I am a, <laughs> I am a robot you know um and sometimes that's in a kind of conscious self-aggrandizing way like I am the blessed giver of things that the world <laughs> needs and sometimes it can be like that but most of the time is this kind of inadvertent unconscious separation of ourselves from the needs that other people have and here's what we don't realize. And what's so exciting about getting more support for mental health, no matter what industry you're in, no matter what leadership role you might have, no matter what creative work you might be doing, the exciting thing about learning a little bit more about mental health, about trauma and its effects, about how your creativity can infuse your well-being work is like you don't realize how much of your executive function and your mental brain power, your emotional power, you are using to resist the reality of your own humanity. Yeah. And you are, you think, like you said, um, Vicki, and this is what I thought as well, you think that like your own needs are in the way. 
And that if you can just ignore them, then you can serve more people. You have more room for other people. But the opposite, you all, is actually true. The more you resist the reality of your own humanity and your own needs, the less space you have to get creative about who you are, the work you do, and how you serve other people. And this is why it's possible to leave, you know, in my work, like you can leave workshops and mental health feeling like, oh, I am more inspired. I am more creative now. It's because we've opened up some space for you to allow yourself to be a human mm. who is actually connected to other humans. You're not some dispenser, like we're not a vending machine. <laughs> like I had said, you are a fellow human. And when you can reckon with that and accept it and then move forward with some tools, that actually is much more freeing and you get much more creative and much more confident in the work that you're doing. And I love the fact that um, you talked earlier or we talked about being depleted. And I think that so much gives the picture of you're you're giving so much of yourself and you're depleting all of the things that you need to reinvigorate yourself and and that a workshop can ignite you you know to to take the next step but i think it's not a one and done type of thing if oh. you once you recognize <laughs> that this is going on it's not a you know, it is something that now is going to be part of your life. You know, it's a, mm. a need for a coach or a need for someone to talk to is, is not saying that you're crazy or that you're less or anything. It's just saying you are a human and we need each other to share ideas and trauma and sorrow and all those joy, everything. Mm, yeah, all of it. I mean, it's an ongoing practice. And uh, the way I often imagine it and, and talk about it with other people is that it's not so much um, any kind of like program that you might go through. And now I've done something, like you said, that's one and done. It's more like, how can we get a new um, lens to put on in front of our eyes so we see ourselves in the world in this new, more realistic way, which is like, oh, if I'm a human, that means I'm going to have human needs for my entire existence forever. <laughs> and yeah. I have to say, like, you can't apply trauma-informed practices to other people unless you know how to apply them to yourself. Yeah. And that's going to be work that you're doing for the rest of your life. But once mm -hmm. you know how to do that and know that it's possible, it doesn't always make it easy or simple. It doesn't mean that you have all the time at your fingertips, especially in the US with when healthcare isn't you know, a human right. It doesn't mean that you always, that it's just easy and you just snap your fingers and you can make it happen. But it also means that you are not looking to yourself as somebody who's a robot, who should always be able to squeeze your human experience into like, <laughs> you know, our three acceptable settings in, in professional society. Like you can be mildly upset or like fine or mildly happy. And you're not allowed <laughs> to be outside of those in any way. But if you, yeah. if you have this new perspective that you're like, no, I expect myself to be a human. I expect to have the human experience and I expect the people around me to also be having it. And I have some tools and knowledge to where if I'm maybe entering into burnout or if I'm having a really powerful emotional experience, maybe I'm more aware of that and I have some tools for how to do that or how to extract myself from the moments so that I can figure out some time, give myself a buffer and some time to process that. Um, once you have that, then that's the toolkit for the rest of your life. It doesn't, it's not something that ends. It's a, it's, it's a new way of understanding your own humanity and then being able to wrap that into the work that you do from here on out. And the fact that 
hopefully you're continuing to grow and push yourself outside of your comfort zone to do new things. And then, so the, the needs that you had yesterday may not be the needs that you need to take care of today or tomorrow. And that's why I, I think it's great that you elaborate that, that it is ongoing. That Yeah. You know. And creatives are set up to, to take that up, right? Like we are always, um, we've trained our brains to always be imagining and thinking about what's next. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you can apply to your own well-being as well and to the well-being of the people around you. What is it that's needed now that wasn't needed yesterday? What? How can mm-hmm. we think about what might be needed tomorrow? Those are things that our brains are good at. We just don't, we're just not often encouraged to apply it <laughs> to yeah. our own sustainability and well-being. So I'd like for you to explain to the audience on your website, you have an ebook, The Arts on Pers- uh, Prescription, a field guide for U.S. communities. So what does that entail and um, why did you decide to write that book? Oh, I mean, that's a really good question. <laughs> what is art and prescription? Um, well, in my work now, a lot of my research has focused on, like I mentioned, the the benefits of the arts for our health. And that can, I mean, arts is literally anything that you could possibly attach the word art to. And health, you know, that could be understood in myriad ways. So it's not just art therapy or music therapy. It's like, how are all of the ways in our society that our access to arts and culture affects our health? And that could mean, you know, symptoms of diagnosable illnesses, but that it could also mean like our ability to connect and be social and to thrive and to find meaningful work and belonging and these kinds of things. So that's a big part of my research, but there is a growing Um, there's growing interest in how we connect the benefits of art to our, you know, actual systems of care and social work and in healthcare in the U.S. And in a lot of other countries, they have models of care called, um, a lot of times called social prescribing, where if you were to go see your healthcare provider and they notice a certain need that couldn't be um, met with like clinical care, they might refer you out to something in the community. Like that could be housing assistance and food assistance, but could also be like here, you could volunteer for this issue that's meaningful for you. And that might give you a sense of a greater sense of meaning in your life. Or here's where you could go meet some people who have shared interests or, you know, sport and recreation or arts. Um, So in the U S there's been this increased drive to also expand what our clinicians and providers can refer out to. In most communities in the U.S., your provider can refer people to things like housing assistance, food assistance, support groups in the community. But there isn't very much going on as far as connecting patients to arts and cultural opportunities or to nature, which we know that like time and nature, uh, Mm -hmm. green space can be so effective for our health. Mm -hmm. So there's this real movement to like, okay, if we have this growing evidence, which we do about all of these ways that arts and culture and nature benefit our health. What are we going to do with that? We can't just, you know, we don't want to just sit around and be like, cool evidence. (laughs) We want to be able to figure out, okay, how, how should this evidence shift how we think of healthcare in the U S. And so this idea of arts and prescription is exactly what it sounds like the model of care in which your healthcare provider could write a referral for you to go to a museum, to go see a music concert, to take a class in drama or, um, art of some kinds that the, to go spend time at a park, it could be a park pass for a local like national park near you. Um, There's all kinds of versions of this, because as you can imagine, every community has a different set of arts and culture and nature resources that are, that might be available to people. Um, 
but I've been doing some research in this field for a while. The Mass Cultural Council in Massachusetts is the statewide arts council, launched the first statewide arts and prescription model in the US in 2020. And I was brought in to evaluate that a couple years later. And then we learned so much that we wanted to combine that so that other communities in the US could not only learn what, what is arts and prescription, but do it in their own communities. So this, um, this book that you mentioned, we call it a field guide. The Arts and Prescription Field Guide is a collaboration between Mass Cultural Council and myself and the University of Florida Center for Arts and Medicine. We brought together so much research over time, so many findings, uh, so much um, evidence, both peer-reviewed and from our interviews and work across the country, and created a guide. It is free. We want everybody, we developed it so that communities across the board could have access to it. So I hope that you will go grab it. And it's just 120 pages, basically, of um, background and how-tos so that, you know, this is something that, uh, I mean, Harvey Mason Jr. mentioned it at the Grammys <laughs> in 2023. Like, wouldn't it be great if doctors could prescribe music? I'm going to tell you, I got so many texts that night. Like, he doesn't know. And I was like, you're right, this is already happening. It's totally possible in your own community. And we want more and more people to be able to yeah. um, make that happen. You know, I know for my myself, whenever I worked for a long time for an accounting firm and just before tax season, I would take a trip to Florida to sit mm. in October to sit in the uncrowded beach and just listen to the waves so that my mind would be where it needed to be for that crazy busy time that I knew was coming along the way. But but the other piece is that, um, and whenever I talk about speaking, I always talk about thinking of songs that you hear and how mm -hmm. a song without on the radio, without seeing the person's facial expressions or, you know, feeling anything from what you're seeing, it's everything is how you feel from the words and the expressions of it. And it can change your mood. It can change the way you are. And to me, and I'm married to an artist, so I, I understand the value yeah. of art in everything you do. And uh, so I'm so glad that you've done this research. I think it's just so important. And I got the download of the book and I encourage all my audience to get the download of the book. Definitely. I wanted Thank to you. talk about the article you wrote on music and mental health. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a, we, I mentioned the accumulating evidence that's behind the idea of arts and prescription. And, you know, we did a, um, an, a scoping review, basically, of like, what is all of the evidence related to how music has been used to address symptoms of serious mental illness? Mm -hmm. And I think, like you mentioned, a lot of people, it's intuitive to them that like, we do tend to kind of self-medicate with music in lots of different ways. When we want to clean the house, you might turn on like some really energetic music <laughs> when you're working out. Um, when you have something to process, you might turn on a, an intentionally sad song just to help you be in that space and move through that emotion. Um, we do this pretty intuitively, but there are also people who are using music to address serious mental illness, symptoms of very serious um, conditions. And we wanted to learn a little bit more about how that that was working. And I mean, that review was massive and it took a very long time. Our findings, you know, the interesting thing about the role of the arts in health is that you're not going to find as many <laughs> compared, especially to like pharmaceutical, you're not going to find as many things like adverse effects of that intervention. You might find yes. that it's not 
it's not as effective as you hoped it would be, or it's not as effective as treatment yes. as usual, that you're not going to find that people were harmed by it. Usually there are very, there are some occasions and when that, when that happens. But um, what was interesting is that we saw that um, two thirds of the studies found that that the music intervention was um, equal to or better than the treatment as usual and that people really enjoyed it. One of our other big findings was that the way that these studies are conducted differs so much from one discipline to another, like the way that a music therapist might conduct a study is really different as it turns out from the way like a, a social scientist might conduct a study of music and, and these disciplines aren't always talking to each other. So they use different terminology for the same kinds of things. And that means that on, this end, when we're kind of looking to bring all this stuff together, it's kind of hard to do. There's a little bit of apples and oranges problem there yeah. that I think that the field is trying to address. But it's very exciting to see, um, you know, I often say that humans evolved to make and share mm -hmm. art for a reason. Mm -hmm. It's because it serves us in some way. If it didn't, we, we would have abandoned this practice millennia ago. So just as a foundational thing, art cannot be just like, understood as like a luxury or indulgence. It's clearly this way that we've learned to survive and connect and understand the human experience. And there are things that we can um, know and think about and process and bear witness to via the arts that we might literally be unable to do otherwise. And that doesn't, that's not a deficiency in us. That's literally the reason why we evolved to give ourselves many more mm. communicative options than just conversation like this. It's because we need it and we benefit from it. And um, that study was an interesting example of the many ways that humans can um, utilize music to address some of our most difficult experiences. And if you think about it, most any art on a wall, uh, if, you know, pictures, photos, any song, the, the basic foundational piece is they're telling a story mm. and a story that you know, sometimes just needs to be told, but that story lives on as the, as the, the author is no longer with us. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's what makes art so healing is that you see, look at something that was done centuries ago and you feel what they were feeling and you feel connected and it, it may be just what you needed to see or hear. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's so much that goes beyond um, forthright communication. And then so much of my work, especially in workplaces with mm -hmm. uh, leaders who, like we have already said, feel like they're supposed to be on all the time and perfect all the time, be able to, you know, I'm supposed to be able to cope with anything and just show up and be perfect. Um, a lot of times we assume as in our society that if you are put together and you're showing up well, that means you should be able to talk about anything in your life in this very straightforward way, A, then B, then C. And that's just not backed by science. That expectation is not an objective or a scientific expectation. That's not real. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. just a socially constructed, this is, this is the kind of communication that in a lot of public professional places we feel comfortable with. But that's not, that doesn't mean that it's the kind of communication that is most effective or yeah. useful for humans. And I often find myself saying it like, in, in your world and in your work, and if you're a leader and you have lead teams, if you can make this possible for the, your team, all the better as well. But if there, there may indeed be occasions when it's not possible or even optimal to expect people to be able to say, to be able to communicate in some kind of like linear fashion 
Mm. or chronological fashion? How can you set up your work and your world and your expectations for yourself that it is absolutely okay to need to express something in a different way that might not come out in this um, you know, perfect yeah. conversational mm. tone? And if you need that, again, that's not a deficiency. That just means that you're human. Congratulations, <laughs> you know, but find the tools <laughs> find the tools that you need. And this is a benefit so often of the arts is that there are ways, sometimes it's useful to, to storytell and say like, this is what happened and in this and in this. And then by moving through that story, we, we do a cause and effect process that's great for our mental health. But then also sometimes we need to be able to express what's going on without having to name the details. And mm -hmm. so that can mean like, how can I express the emotion that I'm feeling without necessarily having to tell you why I'm feeling it or all the details or make sense of it in my own brain. And I think that's what we often pick up on from other musicians, from other artists and visual art, even when it's not, even when the painting is abstract or even when we, the song is in a different language, we are picking up on some kind of expressivity that we resonate with. and that can just serve as a reminder that sometimes that's what you need and it's okay for you to need it. It's okay for your teams to need it. It's okay for your customers and clients to need it. How can we make a little bit more space for the way that we actually human in the world, which is yeah. often not in this robotic um, ex expected way. And that just goes back to the first question I asked about the tone and how important tone is. Yeah. And this being intentional about, mm -hmm. um, what is it that your audiences might need, but then also what is it that you might need yeah. as far as how you communicate to your audiences, whoever that might be, clients, customers, an actual audience at a show, or, you know, to yourself, you as the own, as the audience of your own expectations, the norms and assumptions that you've maybe accepted. Mm -hmm. How can we maybe reimagine those and um, make them more aligned with, with our actual humanity? So I had a question, but I think you've already answered it. And it was, you know, how can we ignite change so that we improve our well-being? And, you know, I think it it has to start with ourselves. But, um, you know, what else can we do to ignite that change? Mm, I mean, that's a big part of being in public health, which is where I am right now, is that we're often wrestling with the fact that optimal health for human beings is always requiring some change. Our current yeah. systems and structures and assumptions and norms aren't set up for optimal human thriving. That's just the way that it is. Um, but where I get some hope and what, what I'm inspired about when it comes to that as a creative, as an artist, and when I'm working with um, employers or with workplaces or teams or organizations, what gets me excited is that this means that we have um, reason and kind of like urgent opportunity to reimagine our work to reimagine everything that, um, you know, James Baldwin said, the world is before you and you need not take it or leave it as it was when you came in. Mm. And that matters to your leadership work in general. It's not just when we think about innovation and creativity, a lot of times people are thinking about how can I innovate around my product or service or something like that. And that's important. I love to help people do that, but also how can we innovate and reimagine the expectations and norms that we've set up for ourselves, for our teams, for our communities? How can we be a part of the change that has to be ignited in ourselves and then also in our um the, the kind of premises that we've accepted about how humans are supposed to have to show up. What if that can change too? All of that is malleable. All of it is made up and constructed, right? And we can choose to, um, to lead and ignite change, not only in 
ourselves, which is where it has to start, not only in the work that we do, but also um, at this outer kind of a layer of societal expectations and what we think it means to be human and how we make more space for that for ourselves and for everyone around us. Awesome. So I have time for just one rapid fire. Oh, sure. <laughs> Describe yourself in one word. It's um, <laughs> always, always a hard one. I would say questioner. I'm a questioner. Very good. I would agree with that. <laughs> and again, it ties it all back to the beginning where we said that at the end of your bio, it is not having all the answers, but asking the right questions or best, better questions. Better questions. Yeah. And they're always, they're mm -hmm. always out there. I was just quoting Baldwin, but I'll bring him back again. He said, mm -hmm. He said, the artist cannot and must not take anything for granted, but must drive to the heart of every answer and expose the question the answer hides. And oh. I love that because our expectations and assumptions, our social norms, the things that we think this is just how it has to be, that's an answer that we've accepted. Mm -hmm. And the work of the artist, but the work of any of us who are doing creative change-making work in the world, the work is to question everything. Does this, is this actually how it has to be? Or have I just had a failure of imagination? How can mm -hmm. I open it up and, um, and ignite the change that would make that, that could make this a completely different world to live yeah. in? Awesome. All right, it's time now for me to share my screen. So those of you that are just listening in, if you have not done so and taken notes all during this time, shame on you, you missed some golden <laughs> stuff. But of course you can uh, hear this in the replay. The information is gonna be on the slide that I'm gonna show. I will read the website. So if you wanna go grab that paper or pencil right now. So the website is https colon forward slash forward slash www.tashagolden.com. Again, that's tashagolden.com. On LinkedIn, she's at Tasha Golden. And Instagram, she's tasha.golden. Again, tasha.golden. And I'll let her talk to you a little bit more about what you find on the website when you go there. Oh, thank you. Yes, I would. I love to work with people who are um, imaginers and creatives who are looking to expand their work or grow their work in new ways. So um, please come to the website, look me up. There are some free things that you can get there. There's a free um, ebook called Arts and Health for Big Ways to Improve Health Through the Arts. And again, that is health really broadly understood. So even if you're just interested in well-being um, in these really general ways, that is going to give you some really great ideas. The Field Guide to Arts and Prescription is also on the site. I would love for you all to get that. We mean it to be free to all communities. And then of course, if you want to chat about the, the work that I do as a speaker or consultant for your organization, would always love to hear from you. And there's a contact form there to reach out. Awesome. Tasha, it just was really wonderful chatting with you. You um, have a lot of things that you're doing that I think the world needs to do. And I, you know, I hope that communities will start to embrace and, and this um just a, like an ember that you ignite change throughout and and we all will benefit from having a better well-being so thank you so mm -hmm. much for being an awesome guest oh thank you it's been lovely to talk with you thanks vicky 
So as always, I remind everyone that life is a journey and it's up to you to enjoy the ride. This is Vicki Nethling signing off. Thank you for tuning into the Find Your Leadership Confidence Podcast with Vicki Nethling, where we share impactful lessons that help you grow as an individual, grow your confidence, and find the positive and good within you so you powerfully and authentically become the best version of yourself. Remember to visit our website at www.findyourleadershipconfidence.com and enjoy even more great episodes like this one. Again, while you're here, subscribe to us via your favorite network. We look forward to seeing you next time on the Find Your Leadership Confidence Podcast.